Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue in the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, August 22nd, 2021. It's a lot of twos. Yes, we are back home, back in town, back on the mics. Back in Afghanistan. Well, not us, but the news is Yes, back. the news is in Afghanistan, yes. And we will be today for our discussion. That's right. Almost all of the shows that I looked at were, exclu- not exclusively, but I would say 75% focused on the happenings of Afghanistan. Yep, mine as well. And all five shows were on. It was great to cover the regular sweep of shows once again after our brief hiatus oh and by the way thank you to everybody who took the the journey with us the film journey last week it was a lot of fun it was a lot of fun and it's good to have talk about journalism more broadly when we kind of take these breaks or go on trips and just so everyone knows when we go on vacation we're still we're still forcing our friends to talk about the news with us (laughs) (laughs) so there's poly log-esque conversations still happening just not being recorded yeah exactly but here we are back at the mics and naomi why don't you tell me whether you had a quality or questionable moment you wanted to highlight this week so i have a quality moment it's kind of a heavy moment but quality and it was the closing segment on state of the union Now, State of the Union today was not hosted by Jake Tapper nor Dana Bash. It was hosted by Brianna Keeler, another kind of CNN host. I think she has like a two o'clock show or something on the weekdays. And we've seen her before hosting. That's true. She is kind of one of the State of the Union backup hosts. And it was a segment that was recorded by Jake Tapper a few weeks ago with a former Michigan congressman, Paul Mitchell. He was a Republican congressman who uh, left Congress essentially after he tried to question Trump's election lies and he resigned to spend more time with his family. Sadly, he passed away last week from cancer. But there was a really powerful interview that Jake Tapper had with him while Congressman Mitchell was in hospice and kind of his thoughts about the state of politics right now. Take a listen to a couple clips from that conversation. Congressman Mitchell, um, this is an unusual interview. I've never done anything like this before. Um, You're in hospice with cancer uh, and you said you'd like to talk. Um, but you don't want this interview to air until you're you're gone. Hopefully that won't be anytime soon. Tell us, first of all, how you're feeling. A little beat, to be honest with you. It's, uh, we had, we were on the upward climb. We thought we had uh, it under control. I was in the rehab pretty well and then had some issues and did an ultrasound and found it had already spread significantly. So um, at that point in time, I think you just have to recognize reality and, so we uh, finished uh, checking into hospice uh, yesterday. I believe only God gets to decide. That's what I believe about. And that's what I tell folks when I was running for office. 
Um, I don't I don't believe in abortion, and I don't believe in executions because on, it's violating what I believe. Only God gets to decide. He's decided that my guess is about a month here. I uh, I'm done. Okay, spend some time with my family. My mom always taught us make a difference. Don't just fill up space in the world. Make a difference, which is why I did what I did in my career. Uh, I don't know as I can make much of a difference now, except uh, to my family. I want them to understand that uh, you can die with honor. You can die with peace. Uh, why, why be angry and bitter at God, whatever God you believe in, when your time is up? What I miss right now is I wish uh, I'd like to talk with President Biden and some of the people I know in the administration about we, we need real bipartisanship. Uh, our country, our society is struggling. And it's struggling because people can't accept they believe in different things and look for what they agree on and decide whether someone's a good person or not. Um, and that's too bad because it really is a struggle. For example, if you don't agree with us on, on having a vaccine or not a vaccine, and I won't talk to you. It's breaking up families. I imagine this experience is giving you a, a, an even more unique perspective on, on the day-to-day concerns a lot of people in politics and the news media spend a lot of our, our lives dealing with. When you look at, at the state of our politics from your hospice bed, what does it look like? Well, I think you have to choose whether or not I think it's a choice whether or not to love people or to go through life trying to get political gain something about creating hatred. I think we lack the willingness to just accept people. I've got good friends on the Democratic side. What we agree on is maybe 10 or 15%, but I think the world of them. I think the world of them, he said at the end there. Yeah, just such a powerful conversation. And I think to want to have this conversation, knowing that your passing is imminent, soon, forthcoming, and to want to share this message once you're gone is such a reflection of wanting to use your last moments as best as you can and to try to leave a lesson with your colleagues and with your peers and with your community. And in this interview and in this conversation, Jake Tapper seems so many times kind of choked up or emotional, recognizing this is a not just a politician, but a human being who wants to have one more impactful conversation with him. It was really moving. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you hadn't told me anything about this and I hadn't seen this before this moment, but it is a powerful thing to do. And it speaks a lot of Jake Tapper that he would agree to these terms and go to this place and participate in this and follow through with the commitment to air it after the passing of former Congressman Mitchell. Absolutely. And there's something to be said, like the Congressman says that to disagree with someone and to still find value in who they are, that's so missing. Uh, in our kind of day-to-day lives, I think, or the day-to-day kind of culture. And so it's good to have that reminder. Absolutely. Brendan, did you have a quality or questionable that you wanted to share? 
Yeah, so mine relates back to Afghanistan. I mean, there was a lot to talk about, and it was hard to cram it into our segments. So I kind of spilled over here. And this is something that I did indeed feel was questionable. And it was just kind of the um, the one-sidedness to a lot of the media discussion that we heard, literally the words and the questions coming from the media as it related to the Afghanistan situation right now. For example, a lot of the panels, and that's what I'm going to focus on here, a lot of the panels were, you know, we often expect a panel to either be all journalists or to be balanced in some way, maybe with some journalists and some political commentators, but often we expect those commentators to be balanced. If you have someone from the right side of the perspective, you have someone also from the left side of the perspective to balance it out. We don't expect that things will be inherently imbalanced. But that's what it was on a lot of the Sunday shows that I covered. I looked at all three, Fox News Sunday, Meet the Press, and This Week. And a lot of them had this unbalanced quality to them. But it wasn't just about that. It was about where the conversations went. For example, the way that on Fox News Sunday, I heard Chris Wallace steer the conversation was so single-minded. All he cared about was, it seemed, reveling in Biden's failures, missteps. It was all about Biden. Even when a panelist tried to take the conversation more broadly to be about, I don't know, Afghanistan or our history there or the future there, not even necessarily denying Biden's role, but saying there's bigger issues here. Wallace said, oh, no, but let's talk about Biden, 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 Biden. It was just so obviously transparent what Chris Wallace cared about and what he was going to let happen on his show and what he wouldn't let happen, which was a broader conversation. Here are just a handful of the questions that Chris Wallace asked during his panel. Jerry, Joe Biden ran for president based on his experience, uh, especially in foreign affairs, on his competence. Uh, How badly has the Biden brand been damaged, not only by the sudden fall of, uh, of uh, Afghanistan to the Taliban by the, by the chaotic evacuation, but also how the president has responded in public this week. By the way, that Jerry that he's mentioning is Gerald Sieb, executive Washington editor of The Wall Street Journal. And you'll hear his voice at the beginning of this next clip. I think the more interesting question in the long run may be why. Why did two successive administrations, the Trump administration and now the Biden administration, decide they wouldn't leave a relatively small U.S. force on the ground in Afghanistan as a stabilizing force and a buffer against this kind of Taliban takeover, uh, but rather pull everybody out at a time when we still have lots of troops in places like South Korea and Japan and Western Europe? Why take everybody out? I think that's going to be the longer term question. Yeah, uh, Dana, that may be the longer term question, the policy issue. But this week, it seems to me the real question is is competence. The president went out on Friday to show that he was getting ahead, getting a handle on the evacuation. And in fact, he made things much worse. He said that there was no problem for Americans getting to the airport. Wrong. He said that al Qaeda has, uh, is, is gone from Afghanistan, gone. He said he's heard uh, wrong. He said he, that uh, we aren't hearing any criticism mm-hmm. 
from our allies wrong. How do you explain him just being so flatly wrong on a number of essential issues? Dana, it seems to me that we learned a lot about Joe Biden this week, that for all of the talk about his empathy, that in fact he has made a pretty cold calculation that, for instance, the plight of Afghan women, and there's every reason to believe their lives are going to get a lot worse now with the Taliban in charge, is not a matter of national security, just as he appears to have made the cold calculation, despite the fact that five billion people around the world haven't had any vaccination, that he is going to provide not only one and two, but a third booster dose for Americans. In, a, in its own way, it's a form of America first. So, wow, Biden, Biden, Biden there from Chris Wallace. And by the way, I think I have to have a little shout out to Politico Playbook PM, which wrote a headline on Wednesday that essentially said, the Biden admins cold logic on boosters and Afghanistan. I've got to think that Chris Wallace got that from Politico Playbook because he uses almost the same words there. Uh, but now let's look at another panel. This is the panel on Meet the Press, where we heard from Andrea Mitchell, a very common voice on these panels from NBC News. And we also heard from Helene Cooper, who is a Pentagon correspondent for The New York Times. And I think both of these comments here I want to highlight are representative of a lot of the media buzz around Afghanistan. For example, take a listen to Andrea Mitchell's criticism and who she leans on as a source. It just seems to me that the fundamental issue is closing Bagram, no matter what they say, closing Bagram, uh, because that broke the, the will, uh, the air cover that right. the Afghan Defense Force, criticizing the Afghan Defense Force, Leon Panetta and others saying uh, they were really, they lost 75,000 people. They were real fighters. But once they saw us gone, once they saw Bagram closed, mm -hmm. then they knew that why wouldn't you flip sides if the Taliban were threatening to kill your, your wife and children? So when Andrea Mitchell brought up Leon Panetta, that's our dog kind of moaning about that. <laughs> She's been groaning about that. She's been listening to us rant all day. <laughs> when she brought up Leon Panetta, I thought, oh my goodness. So first of all, to all the Polylog listeners out there, if you are not subscribed to Judd Lejeune's popular information newsletter. I would highly, highly, highly recommend it. He broke down some of the media's, quote, systemic failure on Afghanistan in his newsletter of August 18th. And in it, he took a very, it felt polylog approach to dissecting the Washington Post's straight news piece on Afghanistan that was titled Biden's promise to restore competence to the presidency is undercut by chaos in Afghanistan. And in particular, he pointed out how so many lead quotes in this story and across the news, not just in the Washington Post, have leaned on former CIA director and secretary of defense Leon Panetta. Panetta had lots of critical words for Biden's choices, lots of you know, armchair quarterbacking, isn't that what they say uh, in, in sports, about the choices. <laughs> I think it's bad. I think you're combining euphemisms. But anyway, I think people get the idea. Yes. <laughs> uh, lots of criticism of Biden. But what's never brought up in the article and is never stated in lots of places is that Panetta 
isn't just someone who served a role that makes him qualified to talk about it, but actually served a role in the Afghanistan situation. That in 2011, Panetta said that Afghanistan had seriously weakened the Taliban and that the Afghan people were able to control their own fate. He also said that the development of the Afghan army and police force was on target and they were doing their job. Then in 2012, Panetta said, according to Judd Lejeune, that Afghanistan needs to be able to govern and secure itself, and they're very close to accomplishing that in 2012. In 2013, Panetta said that they'd entered, quote, the last chapter of establishing a sovereign Afghanistan that can govern and secure itself for the future. None of that was true. Panetta has been wrong, wrong, wrong on Afghanistan for over a decade, And yet he's quoted in, according to Lejeune, Fox News, The New York Post, The Hill, MSNBC, NBC News, The New York Daily News, CNN, and as we heard here, Meet the Press's panel. So this is a perfect example of a lack of critical assessment when it comes to the sources and voices that are being spoken of. Yeah, and I'm going to talk about this as well in my segment, but overall, just a real sense of leaning on the same Afghanistan, quote unquote, thought leaders who have been proponents of us staying in Afghanistan to help understand the withdrawal of Afghanistan. So just a real cluster of objectives when trying to understand who is telling us what and how we should interpret it. Yeah, it's almost like they're booking people on the shows without any recognition of history at all. Right. And, you know, I have to highlight this, what Helene Cooper said later on that panel, because it just, I just bowled over when I heard what she said here. Take a listen. Again, New York Times, Pentagon correspondent. But what the one thing that I feel like this whole conversation on Afghanistan constantly doesn't reckon with is the what some people in the military would call the original sin. And that is the decision that President Biden made that withdrawing 3,500 troops from Afghanistan, rejecting the advice of his defense secretary and his chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to leave 3,000 to 4,500 people there was not going to lead to the insane chaos that we are seeing now. A lot of people at the Pentagon believe that there is no way you would have gotten. Once you make that decision, how do you then avoid this? Because every other way that you right. look around, you take the diplomats out first, that triggers the fall of the government. Right. You start taking out the SIVs, that triggers the fall of the government. It all becomes a confidence thing. Once you move, remove the military, yeah. people at the Pentagon will tell, tell you you're done for. So-, so when Helene Cooper started this sentence saying, the one thing I feel like this whole conversation on Afghanistan Afghanistan constantly doesn't reckon with is what some people would call the original sin, right? That's that's how she starts her statement. I think, oh, she's going to go back to some of the, I don't know, 20-year history of our time in Afghanistan. <laughs> Define a, original. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to draw on there. No, she's going back, I don't know, a few months. That's the original sin of Afghanistan is a few months ago when Biden committed to what the former, also what the former Republican president committed to, which is withdrawing troops from Afghanistan. That's the original sin. The choice to continue what the previous party was going to do as well. It's crazy. How is that the original sin? It makes no sense. Well, I think just on the face of of using the term original sin for a 20-year problem and 
using that to describe a decision that was made a year ago is less than a year ago. Yeah, a few months ago. Is insane. Laughable. Yeah. Yes, I, I just want to finish with, let's have, please, some sense of history in the conversation. But we have a lot more to say about Afghanistan, so we might as well keep rolling with it. Why don't you tell me what you wanted to point out from the shows you looked at regarding Afghanistan? Yeah, so I looked at State of the Union and I looked at Face the Nation, which was actually hosted by Major Garrett. Who is not a major. That's just his first name. That's just his first name. That's correct. It's kind of weird, but... It's cool. It's a cool first name. It's a little deceptive. (laughs) It, 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 It definitely is based on what job he has, right? If he was if was, like if a he was plumber, Admiral Garrett, <laughs> Admiral Major, yeah, that does get confusing. No, too. just Admiral Garrett. Oh, is that his first name? Is that yeah. thing? Yeah, that'd be kind of crazy. It'd be kind of crazy. Yeah, but anyway, everyone can name their child whatever they want. Who cares? <laughs> so, wasn't Major? I'm sorry, wasn't Major the name of one of Joe Biden's dogs? It was. Yeah, I think Major's the one that died recently. Yeah. But moving on to the living Major. And also Brianna Keeler on State of the Union. I feel like I have to take two steps back because we are kind of jumping into this criticism or analysis of the Afghanistan coverage kind of in the middle since we were on vacation the last couple of weeks and didn't get to really look at how the Sunday news shows first covered this breaking story about Afghanistan falling. So there could be, you know, key perspectives or framing that have already been done that we just didn't discuss and that we're not going to be able to discuss. And so I say that all as a caveat to then frame my massive disappointment of what I saw today. And that kind of extends a lot of what you introduced, Brendan, in your questionable, looking at the voices that were booked and also just straight up the framing. I found it very frustrating because I feel like the conversation I am most interested in listening to is how can 20 years of military training and investment in Afghanistan fall apart so quickly? And maybe that conversation is going to be happening soon. There's kind of the more pressing conversation of rescuing and saving American civilians and Afghan allies. And so I kind of get, I get that. It just seems as if there should be room to have both of those conversations at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. What we're seeing instead is a lot of finger pointing and saying, maybe we'll get to that conversation about why is it the way it is and look how bad this was executed. Congressman Adam Kinzinger of Illinois made this point exactly on State of the Union. And we've talked quite a bit about Adam Kinzinger. He's a Republican. He's kind of in the Liz Cheney boat of didn't he and swallowed Trump's craziness and tries to be a thoughtful Republican. Let me say this, and I think this is a really important thing, Brianna, is, you know, we kind of have this failure of confidence right now in this country, and I think we could do a whole segment talking about what went wrong in the nation-building side of this. Uh, I don't think it's as easy as saying we're not good at nation-building, but um, even the people that are totally against Afghanistan say we're really good at fighting, we're just not good at building back. Okay, assuming that, Why are we sitting in the Kabul airport and in Afghanistan right now with such a lack of confidence that we're begging the Taliban to allow us to save our own citizens, that we're very scared to death to talk about if anybody's gone outside of the wire, 
because the United States military is truly capable of anything. Like, look, okay, we can fail at the build back of Afghanistan. Again, we could have a whole conversation on that where I might disagree a little bit, but we know we're good and we're sitting around licking our wounds in the airport. And even President Biden at one point said, gee, we just can't guarantee the outcome. The United States military can, and by the way, I commend the military for carrying out this almost near impossible execution of this, particularly given the circumstances they were handed. Okay, so it seems like he's open to a conversation at a later date about why was Afghanistan able to fall as quickly as it did. But he seems much more interested in being outraged at the weak standing of the U.S. as we try to withdraw from Afghanistan. And it doesn't seem as if there's, I don't know, he's saying like there's time to be nuanced, but not right now. How, are, how you know, it is so disappointing and embarrassing that this is where we are. It's like, do you want nuance or not? I don't get it. Yeah, this reminds me of a voice I heard on one of my shows. It was Joni Ernst, Senator Joni Ernst, another Republican, who said, oh, absolutely, we should be sending troops into Kabul to rescue Americans. And the question was sent, you know, her way, like, well, do we know where all the Americans are? Like, where are the troops going to go? And wouldn't they engage directly with the Taliban? And that would lead to, you know, dangerous outcomes, which is what an expert says later on a panel on that same exact show. But there is this sense out there that like, oh, well, the military should just blow the doors off everything and just go out there and save everyone. And and then we're going to leave and that'll all be great. And it's like, has anyone seen the movie Black Hawk Down? Like, does anyone know, like, the dangerous situations that can ensue if you just, like, throw the military into conflict zones willy-nilly without well, I mean, this about, is literally like, after 20 years of military occupation. Like, yeah. come on, people. Yeah, it's just... So th- this is literally, like, the most nuanced take I heard other than Secretary Blinken and... National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan on the shows from Adam Adam Kinzinger. It just got more ridiculous on Face the Nation. Major Garrett talked to Nikki Haley. Of course, she's the first ambassador to the U.N. under President Trump. And it's just there's this complete there's a, a portion of the Republican Party who wants to just so gladly have some type of failure on President Biden's kind of lap and completely negates and ignores all history, all context and the actual public opinion of the American people. And that being that most people actually want military, the military to leave Afghanistan. Take a listen to this first clip on Face the Nation. This is an unbelievable scenario where literally the Taliban has our Americans held hostage. It's a scary time, and we have to make sure that we are working with our allies who literally won't trust us at this point and think we've lost our minds. We have to figure out a way to get our Americans out and to get our allies out. Someone you know well, the former Secretary of State in the Trump administration, Mike Pompeo, stood alongside one of the Taliban founders and helped negotiate this deal in which President Trump signed an agreement to have United States forces out earlier this year. Did that set in motion what we're seeing now? You know, I think everybody's wanting to go back and talk about Trump. The truth is, under 
four years of Trump, Afghanistan was safe. We made sure that we kept terrorism at bay and that we came from a strength of position. What's happened in seven months of Biden is we've completely surrendered and we've humiliated ourselves in the eyes of the world. The thing is, there are times where you have to negotiate with the devil, but you negotiate with the devil from a point of strength. You don't do it from a point of weakness. We literally have no leverage right now with the Taliban. All we're going to see them do is they're going to buy time and act like they're going to be nice until August 31st. And then all of those women, all of those girls, everything is going to go back to the way it was. You're going to have sex slaves. You're going to have child marriages. You're going to have kids that are girls that are no longer allowed in school. You're going to have our Americans, any that are there will be in danger and all of our Afghan Afghan allies will be killed if we don't do something. This is serious. So quite the doomsday scenario. And that's not to say that there aren't very real risks to women and children and girls and Afghan allies in Afghanistan. But what she's describing here as if this scenario was of of, of this chaos of the last couple weeks is completely dependent on the actions that President Biden has taken since he's been in office is just not true. And Major Garrett has no real counterpoint or fact check to any of these claims. It was a real failure in terms of like active listening. Just super frustrating. Well, and good for him for bringing up Mike Pompeo and the deal that that was struck with the Taliban under President Trump. But what a what a kind of like mealy mouthed question. Did that set in motion what we're seeing now? Well, yeah, of course it did. Right. It's not a matter of that was about the withdrawal of troops. It genuinely set the groundwork to withdraw. So, like, why are you acting like if it's not if it set the groundwork like it did? Like, why are you letting her have an out of something, you know, of as fact? It it's inappropriate. Did getting on the plane set in motion the fact that you were flying (laughs) or or, or is that not right? Yeah, one more point on this interview with Nikki Haley. Major Garrett then asks her if President Trump had some other grand plan. Before we let you go, Madam Ambassador, do you understand it to be true that if President Trump had been reelected, that he had an evacuation and withdrawal plan on paper that would look fundamentally different than the Biden administration? Well, I think let's be clear. The, the President Trump very much wanted to see soldiers come out of Afghanistan. So it's not about soldiers coming out. It's not what you do. It's how you do it. He would never have pulled our soldiers out without making sure Americans and all of our equipment and our weaponry was out beforehand. He would never have allowed the Taliban to take over Afghanistan without conditions. So anyone that wants to say this was already set in motion, it's not what was going to happen. It was how it happened. And this happened in the most embarrassing, humiliating way that is really angers soldiers like my husband and all those that that sacrificed. It puts us in danger that you've got al-Qaeda and the Taliban holding hands in the streets of of. Afghanistan now saying death to America, and now America is much less safe. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley under the Trump administration, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so very much. So she's sure Trump would have done it differently, but she has zero insight. She was not in the administration in those last couple of years. Literally no real, uh, other than blind faith to former President Trump, she has no other kind of evidence to demonstrate that 
anything would be different. Yeah, she's not qualified to answer the question, frankly. I mean, she doesn't know if there was a plan on paper because she wasn't privy to it because that wasn't her job. It's not an appropriate question for her. She's not the right person to ask. After this interview with Nikki Haley, Major Garrett then talks to Ryan Crocker, who served as U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan. Now, Brendan, you've mentioned that really fantastic analysis by Judd Legume, who wrote about Panetta. Well, Ryan Crocker is kind of in the same vein as Panetta, where he touted over and over and over again that the Afghan security forces were more than capable of protecting Afghanistan and had done had reached great strides and greatly kind of praised the security forces and their capabilities. And over the years, Crocker also kind of touted and praised President Hamad Karzai, even though Karzai was really corrupt and there was a desire in the embassy to do something and to force some kind of consequences that were expected of the Karzai regime. And Crocker was of the camp that, no, we should just kind of hide it and move on from it. And it's it's not worth fighting it. So just kind of an overall also shady voice on Afghanistan. And he's booked on Face the Nation as just like a pure expert who's never been wrong. Just right. super frustrating. On and this exact issue that he's being asked about. This same exact country where he served and inflated their capabilities for years. And Ryan Crocker, you probably have seen on Twitter, if you're on Twitter following a bunch of journalists, he has been talked about quite a bit because he has called into question Biden's competence overall. Earlier this week, you said you had grave concerns about President Biden's capacity to lead. What specifically did you mean by that? What I meant by that, Major, is the way uh, not only uh, how his decision was made to withdraw, but then its execution, uh, which has been so far catastrophic. Uh, you know, we've got desperate people, American citizens, other Afghans we've helped, you name it, uh, doing anything they can to, to get out of Kabul. And we will all remember that those horrible images of um, uh, Afghans who had clung to a wheel well on a C-17 uh, dropping out of the sky to their deaths. So uh, the, execute, the decision and the execution, and the execution in particular, does not speak to competency. This this is just so frustrating to hear this voice as if he is correct on all things Afghanistan to then question. It's just beyond frustrating. There's one more clip I want to share from the Crocker interview, and then I have kind of some closing thoughts. And it's this opportunity that Major Garrett gives to ambassador crocker to kind of give his like overall assessments and predictions about what's next and because he's been so good at that he's so good at it he's so good at it you are deeply familiar with this region and many of the players in the next week mr ambassador what are you most afraid of i, I am afraid that as the taliban uh, gains more control as they settle in a bit more uh they are going to go after uh all of those in Afghanistan who have uh, uh, spoken the truth, uh, who have been in the media, who have represented the uh, institutions of this young democracy, 
Um, and certainly those who have helped us directly, like the interpreters. I'm very much afraid that this is going to get worse. The chaos may subside, but as it does, I am terribly worried you're going to see uh, the Taliban uh, start to methodically take care of those they consider their enemies. We will be in no position to help them. Okay, so I, <laughs> I one thing I haven't really said to begin with is like, why have Nikki Haley and Ryan Crocker to begin with, let alone back to back in this episode of Face the Nation? Just a real failing in trying to have a range of perspectives in understanding Afghanistan. Now, Secretary Blinken, Anthony Blinken was on, so there was kind of an administration official, but there was no expert on to give context as to why we're in the state that we're in. A nonpartisan expert. Or, I mean, they could be partisan. They could have been worked in the Obama administration. I well, mean, Crocker could be called an expert based on his experience. Right. But I'm saying an expert who has another, whose opinion and whose, whose understanding is differing, is what I mean. You can have experts who are experts and partisan and have different takes. That, that's kind of what I'm Oh, have, have multiple takes. Like, don't have two from the right side of the spectrum. Or the right side, the hawkish side, wh- however you want to describe it. It's just mind-boggling that there's this expectation to understand this very chaotic, very disappointing, very heartbreaking situation in this country we've been spending so much time and resources and human sacrifice literally for two decades. And what neither of these interviews cover is that the majority of Americans still wanted the military occupation to leave Afghanistan. What people are frustrated with is that it's been such a mess. Understandably, it truly has been a mess. But there's no, I don't know, at least in my world, at least my feeds that I'm seeing, People are very heartbroken, but I don't see a lot of insight being shared about why Afghanistan fell as quickly as it did or what to expect next or or anything of that sort. And it's just really frustrating that there's no kind of expectations that are being set with Americans about what's happening and what we're going to see moving forward. The only like sliver that I've seen that a little bit is there's been some questions about potential risks and dangers in terms of like terrorism dangers in Afghanistan moving forward. And I thought that Jake Sullivan actually made a really good point on State of the Union that said there are greater security risks in other parts of the world and we're able to monitor, track them, quell them without having any military occupation. But that's kind of all in the self-interest of the U.S., right? I wish there was some type of those types of conversations or those types of responses in understanding the state of Afghanistan more broadly. Just get it together, Sunday news shows. Well, it's what's disappointing is that we see the same issues repeating, whether it's in print, whether it's on cable news, or whether it's on the Sunday news shows. There is just this general acceptance that people who made continued mistakes that are a prediction and of their jobs, which was to train up the Afghans and prepare the Afghan government to lead itself, these people are continuing to be booked as if they are simple experts and not as if they had a hand and that they have been proven wrong 
and now we're inviting them on. Like, it's just, it's so bizarre. I, I just can't even fathom why there's this assumption that these people are appropriate voices of just expertise as if they have no history in the matter. Or at minimum, describing that context of their service. Right. That alone would be valuable. If I don't want to be like super jaded and I hope the news ecosystem will get it together in the next few weeks. But there's this kind of reeks of news media decisions in the early aughts when we first went into Iraq and Afghanistan and news organizations were just so pro-war and had very (laughs) and delivered very little in terms of helping Americans understand the commitments that we are about to make and did such a crappy job in interrogating the Bush administration on those decisions. And then we were in a war wars for two decades and ongoing. And so like, that's the part that feels the most like icky to me. It's just like, why, why are we not, why do we not have news organizations that can have, more journalists because there have been like a journalist here or there but more journalists setting the tone for what this coverage should and could look like so i've been going on for a long time pretty frustrated as you can tell brendan what did you see on the three shows you watched today well i saw a lot but we can't cover it all so i'm going to focus in on an area we haven't discussed a lot and that is the administration officials who showed up on the shows, and there were a lot of them, as well as one particular ex-official who was booked on this week. And I do think this week did the best job of all the shows I covered, largely because of this booking, which we'll get to at the end. But there's a little little mystery there. But (laughs) if you watch this week, you know what I'm talking about. But I wanted to start with the admin officials because we've been very frustrated in our voices <laughs> in this episode of Polylogue with what some of the journalists have said, with what some Republicans have said. But there is equal frustration I had with some of the Biden administration officials who I think did, in some instances, an awful, awful job. Take For example, this series of moments from the interview on Fox News Sunday with Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Chris Wallace did an excellent job interviewing him. I think better than a lot of the other hosts that I heard because Chris Wallace zeroed in on issues that were so based in fact and not opinion that they just just won the day, really. Take a listen to... Chris Wallace dissecting some of what Biden said in his press conference on Friday. In addition to the question of the security and the ease of Americans getting to the airport, the president on Friday said a a, a few other things that were flat wrong, Mr. Secretary. Here he is on the threat from Al Qaeda. What interest do we have in Afghanistan at this point with Al Qaeda gone? But... A U.N. report this summer says that al-Qaeda is present in 15 of the 34 provinces of Afghanistan. And General Milley said this summer that if the Taliban fell, that he was or rather took over Kabul, that he was going to have to upgrade the terror threat from al-Qaeda. The president, what the president said just wasn't true. Chris, uh, 
step back for one second. First, as we, as we all know, we went to uh, Afghanistan 20 years ago uh, with one mission and one purpose in mind. And that was to deal with the folks who attacked us uh, on 9-11, to bring bin Laden to justice, which we did a decade ago, and to diminish the capacity uh, of al-Qaeda to do the same thing again, to attack us from Afghanistan. And that, to the president's point, uh, has been uh, successful. Uh, we got bin Laden a decade but, ago. But and Mr. Al Secretary, the, the president, the, sir, the president Please. said al-Qaeda is gone. Simple question. Is al-Qaeda gone from, Pakistan, uh, from Afghanistan? Al-Qaeda's capacity uh, to do what it did on 9-11, to attack us, to attack our partners or allies uh, from Afghanistan, is vastly, vastly diminished. Is it gone? Are there, are there al-Qaeda uh, members and, uh, and remnants in Afghanistan? Yes, but what the president was referring to was its capacity to do what it did on 9-11. And that capacity has been very successfully diminished. So this is just a textbook series of questions and follow-ups from Chris Wallace doing a great job highlighting where the president was wrong, asking the president's secretary of state about it repeatedly, proffering evidence from other members of the administration in his questions, and just pressing, pressing, pressing until Anthony Blinken and the administration in general looks really stupid here. It's like, just say the president was wrong. Just do it. But he can't do that. And it's really dumb that he can't. So one person might say, hold on, Brendan. Just earlier, you criticized Chris Wallace for fact-checking the president during the panel. And yet you are praising Chris Wallace for fact-checking the president during this interview with Anthony Blinken. Well, that is correct. It is because my, my concern with Chris Wallace from the panel discussion was not that he fact-checked Biden. That, that is an important thing and is relevant to bring up in the panel. It was that all Chris Wallace was interested in was Biden's performance. That was the entire panel. And he shut down other conversation to focus, it seemed gleefully, on Biden's performance. But there's a lot more at stake here, as we know, than Biden's performance in one particular remark. But Chris Wallace continues to ride this train of fact-checking Biden's remarks, and it works really great in this interview with Blinken. This is, in fact, this clip I'm going to play, I think the worst performance I have seen, probably from any administration official. And not only that, it is the most meaningful question I think Chris Wallace asked and gets a bit, Naomi, to the question you are wondering about. And that brings us to my final question, which is the failure of both intelligence and planning. I want to play for you comments that President Biden made this week and that he made in July. Take a look, sir. The idea that somehow there's a way to have gotten out without chaos ensuing, I don't know how that happens. The likelihood there's going to be the Taliban overrunning everything and owning the whole country is highly unlikely. How does chaos go from highly unlikely to inevitable in just six weeks? And, and frankly, sir, what does that say about the competence of the president and all of you on his national security team? Chris, there's going to be plenty of time uh, to look back, to figure out um, who was saying what when, uh, what uh, should have happened differently. Uh, plenty of time for that. I've got to tell you right now, I am focused on one thing and one thing only, and that's the mission to get people out of Afghanistan, to get our people out, to get our partners out, 
to do it as uh, fast as we can, to do it as effectively as we can, to but do you, it as safely as we can. But you do realize respectfully, sir, that and, and you're saying that, the Pentagon's saying it, the president's saying that, that's a way to avoid accountability now in the midst of this disaster. Chris, there, uh, this is not about uh, avoiding accountability in our system, uh, thankfully. There is accountability. There always will be accountability. Uh, but there is a time and place uh, for everything. And the time and place uh, right now is this mission. And I'm seeing people around this country rally to it. I'm seeing allies and partners around the world rally to it. That's got to be our focus. And there, again, there's going to be plenty of time uh, to figure out exactly what happened, what might have been done differently, to learn the lessons uh, from, uh, from this chapter, uh, and to, uh, to take account of them. I hate this answer by Anthony Blinken. I hate, and people in the Trump administration did it too, when administration officials shut down an extremely legitimate, probably the most legitimate line of questioning and say, no, 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 I'm just focused on the here and now. We can look back later. I think Pompeo did this a lot. We'll look back later. We'll, we'll have a full, you know, accounting of what went wrong or what happened. But right now we're focused on the mission and the mission is blank or whatever. I'm focused on tomorrow and I'm not looking back. I hate that. Just answer the question about what happened and what went wrong and where you're clearly inconsistent, as Biden has been over the last few weeks. Well, and it's also not the media's job to not ask questions when you're not ready. Right. (laughs) Like, Fundamentally, like they're going to ask questions that need to get asked and to be critical of decisions of this administration, regardless of whether or not you want to talk about it yet. I mean, it, it's just kind of a throwaway line when you don't want to answer something and saying something else is more important. But it's by no means inappropriate or irresponsible. These are the questions that should be asked. Absolutely. And so good for Chris Wallace in not only asking the question, but for his really hard follow-up there where he basically says you're avoiding accountability that's what you're doing here and you're doing it right here on the show and you know that takes a lot from a host i think there's a lot of hosts who would be uncomfortable with with saying something like that well no one said that to pompeo in his i'm not going to talk about that i'm not going to talk about that i'm not going to talk about that okay but i do want to get to one administration official who did a better job at this and i feel like we learned something from him learned even a hint of what Blinken didn't mention, and that is Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. He was interviewed on This Week by Martha Raddatz, who hosted, and she asked him specifically about what the Biden administration expected from the Afghan government after removing American troops. And she continued by asking him if he thought the Biden administration and the Pentagon was ready for what came next. I know the president has said that the intelligence absolutely did not show that anybody, that the Taliban could take over in 11 days. What, what's the earliest you were aware that that could happen? There were assessments that ranged initially from one to two years to, uh, to you know, several months. Uh, but it was a wide range of, uh, of assessments. And as, as uh, the Taliban... Uh, began to make gains and we saw uh, that uh, in a number of cases there was less fighting and uh, and more uh, surrendering and more uh, uh, forces just kind of evaporating it was very difficult to predict with accuracy 
this all occurred in a, in a span of about 11 days. No, nobody predicted that, you know, the government would fall in 11 days. Do you believe as you look at it now, and the military loves to plan for the worst case, that the planning was acceptable and appropriate? I, I do, based upon, uh, you know, the, the, uh, what we were looking at in the inputs to the plan. But I think you have to go back and look at what, uh, what the administration inherited. I mean, we came in and we were faced with a May 1 deadline uh, to, uh, to have all forces out of the country. This, this deal had been struck with the Taliban. And so he had to very rapidly go through uh, a detailed assessment and look at all options in terms of what, uh, you know, what, what he could do. And, and none of those options were good options. He went through a very rigorous process, very detailed process. He listened to, uh, uh, to the input that was provided by all of the, uh, the stakeholders in the, uh, uh, in the interagency process. And, and, and so at, at the end of the day, the president made his decision. But again, uh, he was faced with uh, uh, a situation where uh, there, there were no good options. All were very tough. So what I like about this is that Lloyd Austin doesn't say there will be plenty of time to look back, as we heard from Blinken. Austin provides insight into the range of intelligence assessments that they had, takes us back to what they inherited from the Trump administration, explains the briefings and the assessments that they did, talks about the stakeholders they worked with, and then all the options that were presented. He goes into the whole process because there was a process. Right. And it's like Blinken is incapable and unwilling to even do that and ends up looking awful as a result. And the administration looks awful as a result. And you can question the process and you can question Austin's answer. I mean, to say after everything we saw at the airport over the last few days, you know, that they were that the planning was acceptable and appropriate. I mean, there's a lot of question like, really? You really don't wish that you had planned a little better? Are you kidding me? So you can call into question this answer, but at least it's an answer. And it's a pretty thorough answer. And and that's what we should really demand from our administration officials, no matter what administration they are. And it's not an impossible answer. It's not. It just says this is what we did. This is how we compared our, our options. They were hard options. You know, it's it. It's not like, do you need to be a nuclear scientist to be able to dis- answer this question? It's just a smidge of transparency. Right. That's exactly right. Exactly right. Just tell us what you saw. You were there, right? Like, it's not difficult. It's not impossible. So, but th- this was insightful. And it is interesting to hear, right, that there was, they did not expect it to fall in 11 days. Uh, there's actually an interesting, and I would highly recommend uh, a very good article in the New York Times called, uh, and the headline is, Intelligence Warned of Afghan Military Collapse Despite Biden's Assurances. That's the headline. But it goes much deeper than one particular intelligence assessment and talks about how over the you know last two decades, we have really failed at a lot of our assessments of what the capabilities are of these Afghan forces. And one particular quote stood out to me from this article, and uh, it's a quote by Seth Jones, an Afghanistan expert at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And here's the quote. 
Most of the U.S. assessments inside and outside the U.S. government had focused on how well the Afghan security forces would fare in a fight with the Taliban. In reality, they never really fought. They just laid down the ar- their arms, right? So a lot of these the assess- Afghan forces, the Afghan forces, right, laid down their arms to the to the Taliban. That's what we saw over the last eleven days. There weren't big fights and battles. They just laid down their arms and and gave up. And so it kind of makes sense how Lloyd Austin says some of their assessments suggested it would take, you know, upwards of one to two years because they assumed they'd be fighting for one to two years, but they just didn't fight. And so it happened way faster than anyone thought would be possible. Okay, that takes us finally to what I want to end with, the last clip, the last bit, and that is this incredible interview that Martha Raddatz had that was all too short, I felt, with Admiral Mike Mullen, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and his look back at basically his his latter career here in Afghanistan, advising President Obama and working within the military during that time, and how he's completely reassessed everything after what he's seen the last few weeks. We have all watched with horror the scenes playing out in Afghanistan, but for the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, it is especially jarring. Admiral Mike Mullen was the president's top military advisor 10 years ago. At the time, he supported the strategy to stay in the country and train the Afghan military. But this week, we asked him to reflect on those decisions after watching the Taliban swiftly take over. So when you look back on on those years, are you really kind of beating yourself up over that? Well, I am, yeah. What I thought we could do, uh, and I advised President Obama uh, uh, accordingly, is I thought we could turn it around. Obviously, I was wrong. You've also heard President Biden say, look, we should have gotten out 10 years ago. We should have gotten out after they killed Osama bin Laden. You were there when they killed Osama bin Laden. You were the chairman. Should we have gotten out then? I think in retrospect, yeah, we should have. I don't think it was possible for us to just abruptly walk away right after we killed bin Laden. But clearly we could have gone earlier than we did. As I look back, uh, and and a lot of people are critical of the president right now, President Biden had it right back then. He was focused uh, singly on counterterrorism, and his advice was along those lines, and he certainly said that. Um, And I give him credit for that. So this is, I think, the most powerful interview I heard of the three shows, and perhaps of any in this past few weeks, to actually see somebody who was so involved in the situation, who's looking back based on new facts and assessing what went wrong and their role in it. It is so insightful, so meaningful, and I give Martha Raddatz and the team at This Week so much credit for doing this. I know that we can and have been very hard on Martha Raddatz for all of the former officials that she, particularly military officials, that she loves to invite back on the shows at every potential opportunity. But I think from now on, we're going to have to say, hey, it was it can be meaningful. Right. And this is one such instance of that. Yeah, absolutely. To have someone kind of reflect on their service and admit mistakes and share how those mistakes or those judgments shape what they're observing now is, I think, very powerful. And key to it is 
how Martha Raddatz approached the conversation, right? She didn't say, and we have Admiral Mike Mullen on, retired Admiral Mullen, is here to tell us what he thinks is happening in Afghanistan right now and what might happen in the future. No. She says they invited him to look back at his time and to reflect on the decisions he made back then. None of these other people were asked that, right? The Crocker guy who you had on, the former ambassador to Afghanistan, he was not invited to reflect on his decisions. If he had been, it might have been a more interesting interview, right? And might have taught us more about Afghanistan. Yeah. So Martha Raddatz gets credit not just for inviting him on, but really for the framing of this interview. Absolutely. Which is extraordinary. And I would love to hear more or read more about Mullen's change of heart. I mean, the guy was so deep into this. And now to look back and and change his thinking on it is very significant. So obviously, as you can tell, we had bigger expectations. I think we kind of thought it was going to be like this, but was really hoping that the shows would step up this crisis in Afghanistan and trying to get American citizens out and Afghan allies out. It's not going to be solved in the next few days. And so... Here's to hoping that we'll get some of that bigger insight, bigger conversations in the days and weeks moving forward. Yeah. And the only caveat I would have there is I do think this week and Martha Raddatz did a good job. Yeah. So it wasn't all the shows that that I guess I guess all the ones I saw. (laughs) Not great. So we'll be very closely following this story and we will work hard to have right there in the show notes links to a lot of the references that we had and sources that we mentioned during today's episode so that you can have it and review it and uh, subscribe, etc., to those newsletters and things we mentioned. Absolutely. Well, that takes us to our dialogue challenge, Brendan. What's our challenge for this week? I, you know, I really just want to get into into the history of things, you know? Mm-hmm. I have been, uh, since I was on my vacation, I was doing some more... We were on the same vacation, but okay. Yes. <laughs> I, I was doing a little bit more um, light reading, I guess I can say. I was reading Michael Crichton's Travels, one of my favorite books I would highly recommend to anybody and everybody. But in... And you do. <laughs> and I do, Absolutely given it as a lot of gifts <laughs> but i it just so happens that today i was dipping into it and reading uh, a chapter on uh, one of his travels to pakistan and he mentioned literally i read this today that quote the british in the 19th century had twice tried to conquer afghanistan and twice had failed my goodness this goes around and around and around again and again and again colonialism baby yeah there's also oh i should say there's a good article in the new york times by the former bureau chief in afghanistan for the new york times looking back at a lot of those colonial lessons he mentions a lot of things about what happened in f in vietnam and in algiers with the french situation that happened there and kind of the warning that charles de gaulle gave to president kennedy as Kennedy started creeping into Vietnam based on the, France's experience in Algiers. So history, <laughs> it's all people. there. It's well, all there. White people and their guns and their military. Anyway, lots of history to reflect on. You can 
Share any of your reflections with us at podcast at polylog.com. You can follow me at Beastidal on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at Zero Naomi underscore. And you can always follow the show at PolyLogCast. If you like today's episode, we're supposed to do this at the top of the show. We never remember. If you like today's episode, we would adore it if you could leave us a rating on iTunes or podcast or wherever you're downloading and listening to this show. Yes, I was just on your case today. I know. Nobody has iTunes, iTunes anymore. I know. I need you're to update. the only one. Need to update my computer. Brendan's giving me crap. <laughs> anyway, just give us a rating. It helps people find the show. Yes, we'd very much appreciate it. And in the meantime, have a great week, and we will talk with you next week. Bye. Bye.